You're listening to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1606, The Forest Garden Greenhouse. My guest today is Jerome Osentowski, a longtime permaculture practitioner and teacher, and also the founder of Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute, and author of the new book, The Forest Garden Greenhouse, available from Chelsea Green Publishing. During the conversation today, we talk about his many years building and consulting on the construction of greenhouses. At his site in Basalt, Colorado, the home of Crimpy, this includes creating local greenhouse environments that allows the growing of citrus at elevations in excess of 7,000 feet, while holding overnight temperatures at a minimum of 55 degrees year-round. As a permaculture practitioner, this stems from multiple systems, but one active method that Jerome has developed is his climate battery the principles and functions of which he shares with us in the interview today, and further details of which are available in his book. Whether you're interested in gardening, greenhouses, or appropriate technology, you'll enjoy hearing Jerome share his experiences and knowledge. Before we begin, if you find that this episode or any in the archives inform or transform your thoughts and thinking, there are several ways to help the show. The first is through Patreon, where you can become a member and receive a variety of benefits, including first access to episodes and discounts to partnering vendors, as well as exclusive content you won't find elsewhere. The second is to get involved with the Permaculture Podcast community. Join in the conversation at facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast, or on Twitter where the show is at permaculturecst. And I've also recently joined Instagram as permaculturepodcast. Now then, on to Jerome. I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Jerome, could you get us started by giving myself and the listeners a bit of your biography and background, how you came to practice permaculture, and we'll take the conversation from there. Well, in the mid-80s, when I was um, you know, struggling with a health crisis, uh, I realized that I had to you know, look really hard at my diet, and that kind of led me towards you know, looking for a better way to eat uh, to stabilize you know, the crisis I had, which was hyperglycemia. And I pretty much started to research uh, wild foods and, and microbiotics. Practiced that for 10 or 15 years and stabilized my blood sugar and uh, ate healthier. And, um, and that sort of led itself into me becoming a market farmer and uh, growing food and selling food. And I actually started making miso and mochi as a, as a business. And, and then that sort of gravitated into uh, doing permaculture. After about 10 to 15 years of growing annuals, we decided to, I was hired at a school to implement a permaculture project and started learning about it and took uh, two courses from Bill Molson and then decided to do our Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Forest Garden and uh, we were growing annuals here, you know, for 15 years, and we decided just to convert it slowly into a perennial polyculture and build our first greenhouse, and we eventually turned that into a perennial polyculture. And just over the years, we've, you know, been teaching permaculture and implementing more permaculture design here with more greenhouses, and now we're up to, like, five greenhouses and an acre of edible landscaping and a nursery. So it's a gradual process of very grassroots. Uh, everything we've done here is pretty much uh, on the low end, building from solids, using, you know, 
carbon that we find to build soils, and, and um, it's been a pretty good ride. Uh, and we're and now that we have the book out to document this process, that that makes things a little easier in terms of doing teaching and getting people to sign up for our classes and stuff. Now, when did you start the Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute? Uh, around 1988, I think we are up to doing our 30th year of the permaculture design course right now. And we're coming up this August. And I think that's the longest in the world of doing one a course and a certification course in one spot. So we've kind of, you know, been, you know, holed up here and doing things um, on the ground for a long time. And it shows, you know, some of our forest garden is a, really well developed and lots of fruit uh, for five or six months of the year. And, and I think we'll continue doing uh, courses here. And, uh, that's one of the best uses for the facility. You've really built it up into a demonstration site where folks can come in and see systems that are operating and working, as well as having that 30 years of documentation from the very beginning. Yeah, that the book helps uh, document it, and they can come and kick the tires on something that's working and something that's accessible by the average person that doesn't have a lot of money. And you know, we haven't thrown a lot of money at this project, and people think you know, that you know, it's one way to do it, but it generally doesn't turn out all that good in the end. So I think just small small steps and that's what we've taken here and uh, we we attract a lot of good people uh, wolfers and people who come and help and we've had a lot of help writing the book we had a lot of help uh, building the new greenhouse after the fire and this is a another sort of milestone in you know the whole evolution of of crimpy and uh, is that we had a fire in, in 2007 built and it burnt down the major greenhouse we had here, but that adversity was turned into, you know, a positive thing. We have, you know, we have a new greenhouse, we have new technology, and out of that technology and what we learned from the previous greenhouse, we, you know, now we consult and design other better greenhouses. We could not have done that without perhaps not having gone through the fire and built something new, but it was also from recycled material. It wasn't, it wasn't totally new. It was just being able to take recycled material and build on that and improve the climate biotechnology that we've been working on for 20 years. And so it, that was a milestone. And I, I had to struggle through that at 67 years old. And um, I came out the other end and, you know, we're better for it for now, for now. Your mention of the climate battery, can you describe what that technology is for growing in a greenhouse? Well, um, most greenhouses, are, you know, they're solar greenhouses. They don't use the solar effectively for the most part. They, the solar energy usually overheats the greenhouse or you know, greenhouses don't have insulation, thermal mass. Uh, the climate battery is just one thing. It's basically a, um, a subterranean heating and cooling system. I call it a Polish geothermal because it's, we developed it here 
for the for the most part in the United States, and it's just um, putting subterranean pipes, four-inch ADS pipes, in the ground and connecting them to to big culverts, and then putting fans on that those culverts and drawing the warm air into those into the ground down to three to five feet during the hot part of the day, and that goes on for three months during the fall. So you're charging the whole soil profile as a big battery, we call it a climate battery. And then another thermostat will kick um, that, uh, the fans on and discharge that at night if you need it back into the greenhouse to keep the greenhouse above 50. So it's, it's just one of the heating systems. Uh, in permaculture, we don't have one magic silver bullet. We integrate lots of things in our greenhouse technology. And all our greenhouses are site-specific. Um, we don't sell any particular models, except we do work with the growing spaces, domes, and we put the climate battery in those. But most of our greenhouses are, are site-specific and climate-specific. Uh, but that climate battery is, is the hallmark. Of, it's one of the major uh, heating systems. I also have, I also have a wood-burning stove in my sauna that that heats the greenhouse. Um, last night we had about five inches of snow, and it was uh, really nice to be able to take a, a a sauna and stretch and do some yoga. That sauna opens up into the greenhouse, and all night long that warm air is part of the heating system, part of the backup system, in addition to the the circulation fans. So I don't use the kind of battery on certain nights. Um, I alternate between the sauna, a pallet stove is, is also one of our backups. So we have lots of redundancy in, in the heating system. So we have thermal mass, we have wood-burning sauna, we have a pallet stove, we have a climate battery. All of those can work together or singly to keep the greenhouse at 50, 55 degrees at night. And... Could you give us a bit of description of your growing conditions? Because you're above 7,000 feet of elevation, correct? Yeah, we're 7,200 feet. But we have a unique uh, microclimate here where I live on Basalt Mountain. And we're up on the side of a mountain, so the frost settles down into the, into the valley. We have a huge volcanic extinct mountain in our, as a backdrop for our site here. And the sun hits those volcanic rocks and, and it creates a warm microclimate for the whole region here. Plus we have a pond that helps create the microclimate. So we've gone from zone four to zone six here in climate change, uh, which is on the plus side of climate change. Uh, a lot of people are, are seeing the negative effects of climate change around the world. But unfortunately, fortunately, we're our little space here. We, um, we actually have a very um, positive effects of climate change, and I uh, don't know how long that will go on for, but we'll definitely take advantage of that. Are you seeing a change in the way that your greenhouses operate as a result of that change from a zone 4 to a zone 6? Yeah, because we're only dealing with 10 below zero a few nights a year, as opposed to maybe 20, by 20 below zero, which we used to be back in the old days in the 80s. And, early 90s now we only get 10 below and we haven't really had any cold weather yet and it's um you know we're pushing into uh, in december so it's amazing there's still some 
leaves on some of the apple trees here, and um, we haven't had any serious cold weather. I think it's going to get in the single digits for a few days, but it feels like this long extended Indian summer almost. I think that's, you know, that's uh, supposedly we're on record to be the, the warmest year ever. So it would make sense that, you know, we have El Nino as well, which has brought in a lot of really nice moisture. So, you know, for us, climate change actually is, is a positive, positive thing. I don't want to make it sound like we want climate change to continue, but it's, it is going to continue. And we're just on the, on the plus side of it. Um, you go down to Palisades where they're getting too much warm weather and in February the blossoms on their grapes and peaches bust and then you know, a few months later or a month later they'll get frosted so they're losing some of their fruit um, every other year. Sometimes it can be half of their production or all of their grapes. So that's, that's not good. Um, that speaks to the regional variation that we're experiencing as a result of this as some have referred to it, the weirding of our weather with these changes in patterns. The climate change is, is global weirding for sure. And, you know, we have droughts and floods and in other parts of the country and tornadoes. And But for the intermountain region here in Colorado, we're somewhat protected by the overall climate worldwide. So we still have adequate rain and we don't have cyclones, we don't have tornadoes, we don't have flooding per se in the inner mountains here. And you go to the Front Range and that's not the case. You go to Western Colorado and you have extreme weathers, you know. So the inner mountains are kind of like a little nest egg of protection. And we're just fortunate to experience that and we're enjoying it. <laughs> Your mention of precipitation, are you doing water harvesting into your greenhouses or in some way that it's useful in them? Yes, we uh, we have uh, roof catchments on all of our houses and offices and uh, we catch all the water off the south face of our roof and north face of our roof of the greenhouses and bring that inside with sort of internal gutters that collect the water and then it's some pumped up to larger tanks in the back that you use for irrigation, thermal mass. So we definitely conserve and collect all of our water. And we have a couple of gray water systems as well to recycle. We have composting toilets so that we don't use our septic system other than just use it for dishwashers and, and clothes. We don't put solids into our septic system. So we have a really good Sunny John composting toilet that we use um, the compost only on nursery stuff, uh, on trees and shrubs in a certain part of our garden. Yeah, so we do recycle just about everything that comes on. We have a 6.3 kilowatt power plant on the roof that provides all of our energy needs for the entire uh, facility. Are you grid tied at all or completely off? We are tied to the grid because that's what you had to do in order to get the rebates, but we don't pay a utility bill other than a $10 fee every year, and we can bank a lot of electricity and use it when we need it later in the year. So grid tides are, we do have a backup generator in case we needed it. But we have a very good utility company here that's cooperative and works with everybody to actually put these PV systems on your, on your house so that 
they don't have to buy electricity. They can support the uh, independent uh, TV systems across uh, Colorado. I'm wondering, why did you decide to settle 7,200 feet above sea level in Colorado? Well, I wasn't to do agriculture. I I was a ski instructor and a carpenter at the time, and uh, I was looking for a piece of land to, to build a cabin on, and I found probably the cheapest piece of land at that time because of the access was really bad and um, it was kind of remote. And um, I just, you know, I just didn't have any knowledge of permaculture or or any knowledge of gardening. Um, and I bought this and and experimented and made a lot of mistakes and had, had very little success of gardening around my home until I, you know, decided I went down and leased some land down in the, in the valley, some bottomland, and started a market farm. And then when I started to learn about permaculture, it all came home that I could actually do things up here if I just used some permaculture strategies and techniques. And that's how I got started in building crimpy around my house. And But it went for 15 years of doing nothing in agriculture because I didn't have the knowledge on how to do it. And everything I did was, and it didn't work. And permaculture is a, a great overall strategy and technique to, to harvest water, sunlight, and build soil, and uh, plant the right things, and, and usually it works out. It's one of the things that I like in looking through your book, and as you mentioned earlier about looking at, to build greenhouses that are site-specific, you know, you're using recycled local materials, is the amount of detail that you go into about how to orient your greenhouses in order to make them the most productive for the climate that you're in. There's a lot of conversation of, you know, I've read plenty of books on passive solar homes and everything else, but you really break down the details on solar gain between summer and winter based on your orientation and how to locate things on your site. How has developing those thoughts and ideas come together and what have been some of your successes and failures in discovering how to use greenhouses successfully well you know we we do passive solar and with our climate battery that's that's an active but most greenhouses solar greenhouses are are you know oriented to the south or partially to the southeast a little bit depending on your site and we try to do a climate analysis first to see exactly what you actually need to to build and design you know before you start building and spending more money than you need depending on the climate you want to have in your greenhouse so if you only wanted to do a warm temperate or season extending greenhouse you wouldn't have to do much more than a hoop house with a with some thermal mass and a climate battery if you want to do a, a mediterranean greenhouse you could attach it to your house and put a climate battery in it and if you wanted a four season tropical greenhouse you'd have to go another step several more steps if it was freestanding uh, you would have to have some substantial thermal mass in there and a good climate battery and some backup heating so again it, it's an incremental thing as we talk about in our book you, and we try to walk our clients through that process rather than to overbuild things and take advantages of opportunities to attach greenhouses to buildings because they're the least expensive. And then you share resources between that building, whether it's a barn or a workshop 
or a house. So it's just practical, logical steps. You know, there hasn't been that many books out on greenhouses, and a lot of them have been hoop houses. And we've kind of taken, you know, with our tropical greenhouse. And that tropical greenhouse isn't for everyone. Mediterraneans are greenhouses, and cold climates are very easy to build and not as difficult to heat, mainly because all of those plants go dormant in, in the wintertime. So you're not really harvesting much out of the Mediterranean greenhouse, but you're you're sort of buying your time until spring, and then everything comes back again. It's sort of what's what's happening out in your forest garden. Everything goes dormant. You don't have to maintain it basically. You just keep it above 15 degrees and and wait till the spring, and uh, you they've got figs again, and you've got olives and pomegranates and rosemary. And, the rosemary grows through the winter, but that's the, those are the easiest greenhouses to design, and that's all laid out on our book when we do our climate analysis. I was fortunate enough to be part of a project to build a pair of 12 by 20 hoop houses here in central Pennsylvania, and with our zone 6, zone 7, as long as you keep the snow off in order to allow that sunlight through, you can grow more or less year-round with nothing more than, as you say, a hoop house or just a couple of cold frames. It's in these larger, more ambitious greenhouse projects, such as doing something tropical when the temperature drops. That's really fascinating for me because I remember reading about, I think it was the pineapple pits in London during the Victorian period where they were using, I think it was 20 tons of manure a day in order to grow a single pineapple. Yeah, but those those composted heat in greenhouses, yeah, that, that's an interesting technology. I, I dabbled in that. But, yeah, that's another reason we don't encourage people because, you know, really uh, most of the plants, even citrus and a lot of tropical plants, papayas can withstand some fairly cold weather, but bananas can't. So if you want bananas, you pretty much have to keep the greenhouse at a minimum of 50 at night. And that's the challenge in, you know, some of the regions in Colorado or that are colder than we are here, like in Steamboat, and uh, they're still in their zone, um, you know, four. So we've been pretty lucky to get some pretty good banana harvest, but you have to factor that in. Is it really worth it to do that? I think that for people, uh, you know, it's probably just as good to be able to grow citrus and pomegranates and figs and and skip the bananas. So, but we do the bananas here because we're kind of, that's what we decided to do. And, and it's not that hard for us to maintain that and keep it up. But yeah, it's not worth wasting a lot of energy for a few pineapples or a few bananas racks. So um, you have to be realistic about that. Is the challenge part of the fun of it? Well, I don't know. I don't look at it that way. Uh, I'm, we're fortunate that we don't have to work too hard now, uh, that things are working, the greenhouse gets more sophisticated and we figure out simpler ways to do things and, uh, we get our, you know, our resources in line earlier and, you know, having the right amount of wood, uh, located near the greenhouse so you don't have to worry about transplanting wood during the cold, snowy times. Just, you know, trying to think smart and think ahead of the game is, is good. Uh, you know, our greenhouses, the tropical greenhouses, 
it's going into our sixth year now of the new greenhouse. And it's fun to, I went to Florida at ECHO to the International Agricultural, Tropical Agricultural Conference uh, last week. And um, I brought back a whole bunch of new new seeds and plants and new ideas. And it's always fun to implement those. So we have a, an aquaculture aquaponics tank and we dabble in that. We we have commercial compost tea machines, a couple of them. And so we're always bringing in new technologies that will make everything easier to grow and be more productive. And also it's an income generator as well, not only in the information that we have there to disperse, or, but we can sell compost tea and worm castings. And so I always look at how do we do something sustainable and then create a business out of that. So when you're starting with a new idea, you're looking at the sustainability aspect first and then looking at how you can develop something marketable and productive from there? Well, yeah. Um, you know, like building soils, we, we rely on all the free carbon that's around in the town in the valley. We try to backhaul it in, whether it's leaves, wood chips, sawdust, rotten hay, and and you know, we've been mulching and building compost, but we don't actually make compost piles anymore, but we actually do worm farming in our pathways, outdoors and indoors, and we can harvest that on a regular basis. And that worm, those worm castings make compost tea for our, our commercial compost tea operation, and we also sell worm castings, and we also use them in our nursery. So taking something that's a... You know that people would just throw away, and it goes to the landfill, and maybe they make compost with it. We can value add that carbon and turn it into some really amazing soil that we can reuse a couple, three different ways, and also sell it as a business. So we're actually generating compost tea for sale, worm castings, worms, and it also supplies our nutrient demands and needs here. So rather than the buying fertilizers, we are making it from recycled materials right here in a closed loop. How many different businesses are you operating off of the Crimpy site? Well, we have uh, Crimpy, which is a nonprofit, which is educational, and that brings in a fair amount of income to keep us going with a design course and our academy and our one- two-day workshops. Then we have Jerome's Organics, which is a, a for-profit nursery. Uh, we sell tinctures as well. We, we sell plants, sell worms, compost. And then we have another business, an S-Corp, Ecosystem Design, Dashcom, which is a design business to design greenhouses and properties. And my partner, Michael Thompson, is an architect, and we own that together and that's starting to take off. We we have about you know ten projects a year that we design greenhouses all around the country, and uh, the book should be um, big help in promoting that that greenhouse as well because we feature about fifteen of our case studies in the back of the book about different projects that we've designed and how they're operating now. It's not just what we've done here at Crimpy, but we've taken this to the next level and build commercial greenhouses. On the high end and on the low end, we have other things that we're doing here, livelihoods that we're creating. I'm going to be turning over some of my endeavors here, like the nursery, to 
lease it out to people who want to take it to another level and the herb business and eventually the teaching business because I'm going to be kind of, you know, reducing my my presence here in Crimpy over, over the next 10 years. I'll be doing more traveling and more retiring, and but it has to go on and maintain its sustainability, and that's one of the ways we're going to do that is to make sure that some of these businesses keep becoming viable and generating the necessary income to uh, keep the place going. As you transition more towards a retired lifestyle to pass on some of these things that you've built to others so that all the systems and businesses in place can continue to grow? That's our, that's our goal, and that has to happen in order for Crimpy even, you know, to live another 50, 100 years. It's already been in operation for 30 years, and it'd be a shame to see some of these systems, you know, fall by the wayside because it's, it's pretty exciting what we've created here. The abundance of, uh, of one of the most developed forest gardens outside, uh, you know, to forage and be able to eat off the land here, about 200 varieties of fruits and vegetables and medicines outdoors and you know, about 70 or so uh, indoors as well. But it, it's going to take some courageous people to come in and you know take over some of these things, and we have people lined up to do that, and we're, we're hoping to move ahead in the next couple of years and make all that happen. I'll be busy, you know, traveling, promoting the book and doing some other agroforestry projects that I'm interested in in Hawaii or Cuba, basically just downsizing my um, my presence here, especially during the winter. And in the book with the case studies that you mentioned, I saw some references to the grow house and I was really delighted to see that as Adam Brock has been a guest on the show on several occasions and I was wondering what work you've done with that organization and the people who are there and their greenhouse. Well, Michael Thompson and I were brought in at the very beginning, uh, even before Adam Brock was uh, hired, I think, and to assess the, the possibilities of that, of that whole huge abandoned greenhouse operation. And um, so we, we walked the original owner through a f- the first few stages of we put a climate battery in the hydroponic section of that greenhouse. And we now work with, with the aquaponics operators, Colorado Aquaponics, Flayers, J.D. and his wife. Um, she teaches here during one of our uh, academy classes. And we, Adam's been a teacher here at our design course for, I think, almost six or seven years. He started with Peter Bain, and then now he's a, the main lead instructor. So we work pretty closely. I was just um, in Denver, the Denver Permaculture Guild for a book signing and tree sale uh, a month or so ago. And so we work pretty closely with the people in Denver and that operation has really blossomed. I, I'm really encouraged to see that taking something that was so, it looked so abandoned and so derelict that I was able to take it and refurbish it and turn it into what they're doing now today is doing education on growing food and um, in the food desert right there in the middle of Denver. I find that what you're doing and others such as the Grow House, providing models like this, very encouraging for other folks who are really interested in building something in place. There's been an ongoing conversation for the last year or so, both on and off the air, 
uh, for me about folks who are interested in community and permaculture, but then wind up going to these different places where systems are already in place rather than staying somewhere and building up from scratch. And what you've provided in your book, as well as through 30 years of work and taking so many people through and teaching them, including one of my permaculture instructors, um, studied at Crimpy many years ago, gives ways for people to see what's actually happening and then wherever they happen to be in the world to be able to build something of value that's a model for others and really be able to take these demonstrations in permaculture to that next level to be able to reach more people in a way that when I first started reading about permaculture and studying it 16 years ago now just wasn't there and I'm really excited for all of this that's emerging right now. Well, it is. I think, you know, um, there's the Wolfing Network, and we've, we've joined that. Actually, we've had internship programs for years here, but we've, we weren't actually on the Wolfing Circuit officially until just recently, the last year or so. And we, there's just an amazing amount of really good talent out there, people who are, who are coming and put their energies into places and, and learn and and then move on eventually to some place permanently or some place they want to build on for themselves. But I think it's a really good sort of unofficial way for people to network and put energies into things and learn things. And I'm hoping that, you know, I think that, you know, universities are moving into teaching permaculture, but I think that they have a long way to go in, in, in certain areas that, to actually get things on the ground, or I think some of the permaculture farms are maybe ahead of them in some respects. And it needs to come from all directions, I think, but uh, we have the opportunity to do it without a lot of bricks and mortar and a lot of uh, infrastructure costs. One of the things that you mentioned very early on in our conversation was about doing things slow and using available materials and how sometimes when projects launch, uh, particularly permaculture projects, that they kind of don't really get anywhere or then wind up failing. And I wonder sometimes if that's a result of this just-in-time-we-have-to-have-it-now mentality that's come through in Western society, that things have to be done very quickly and we have to be productive immediately, as opposed to, you know, within the some of the principles of permaculture to slow down and you know, take our time as we move through these ideas? Yeah, well, I think it's a part of it is that a lot of projects, they have um, chief operating officers and then they have a you know, bottom line and they have investors and they want a certain return on their money, you know, but they don't factor in a lot of the other hidden costs and externalities. And then maybe the real world doesn't work that way. You know, maybe the real, real world doesn't work you know, on a balance sheet. It's obviously it doesn't because when you're looking at climate change and, and what we've done, you know, with corporations looking at the bottom line is the only, you know, the final say, you know, it's gotten us into trouble and it's not a, you know, good situation. So I think, you know, looking at different ways of, of doing business, I think that's what permaculture does and some other sustainable approaches to land use, like uh, Alan Savory's management. Uh, I think all those things need to be looked at as new models, and um, 
we need to get more into the mainstream, I think, and if we could make more impacts on that. And the more that we, as a community, continue to write books such as yours and teach classes and workshops and create demonstration projects, the more that it becomes visible to those who are part of that mainstream to see it and to know what it is that we're doing. Yeah, I'm, and I'm really uh, grateful to be working with you know, Chelsea Green because I don't think the book would have been possible uh, without their without their help. And uh, uh, I love reading all the other books that they're coming out with. Um, I just got another one called The Bio-Integrated Farm, which is full of great ideas. A lot of things I've done over the past and some new things. I just read um, the book on Pow Pow, which is a fascinating reading. And we actually interview, we have a radio show on public radio, org. Well, I find I'm just interviewing authors from Chelsea Green because I read the books and I think, oh, wow, this is great. We should talk to this guy about what he's doing. And we learn things. Um, and uh, they've come out with so many good permaculture books in the last few years. And it's, it's great to be uh, on, their, on their team and, and moving along to promote the book. Your mention of the radio show, I was talking with someone yesterday, and without thinking of any of the new authors or folks who are coming up through the line with my current production schedule, like I could release a new episode every week for 20 years without repeating somebody, and yet there's all this new great stuff that's coming out every week, every month, and more folks to talk to and learn from. Yeah, and it seems like there's, there's no end to how we can innovate. You know, just like what we've done with the climate battery and greenhouse technology and taking the forest garden and moving it indoors and there's and other people trying to get to promote, a, you know, a fruit that's been around for millenniums uh, and forgotten, uh, bring that back into the fold. Pow uh, Pow, when I, I was reading that book while I was traveling in Europe and I was doing the permaculture uh, conference and convergence in London, then I went over to Europe to do five countries teaching and promoting my book. Uh, I was reading uh, the Pow Pow book, and when I got to Slovenia, uh, my first workshop there, I had 40 people, and one of the participants brought a couple of Pow Pow, and we cut it up and shared it around, so I had my first Pow Pow in Slovenia, which is, you would consider it not really... A, bit, um, a place where you could grow pow pow with their microclimates there where you can grow the pow pow. Well, thank you, Jerome, for all of your years of work in the permaculture field. I'm a permaculture practitioner directly because of you, as one of my instructors studied out at Crimpy uh, before I ever took a permaculture design course, and I'm very thankful for that and all the work that you've done since then. As we look to bring this interview to a close. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I just think that we need to try to be positive and, and try to get more things on the ground and uh, try to support each other in what we're doing. I think that's probably my, my message. And uh, I'm looking forward to another sauna tonight. that would be quite enjoyable we're finally at the point now where we're staying just around freezing uh, throughout the day so (laughs) winter is finally upon us in Pennsylvania 
Yeah, well, I think it's been a slow, slow approach, but we could have two, two and a half months of winter, and I think we're ready for it. Uh, settle in and be able to enjoy those cold months in preparation for spring and summer and growing again. But you know, we we work in a tropical greenhouse every day, so it's sort of strange to be outside when it's really cold, and and you can go in and play in your tropical food forest and eat citrus and and papaya and bananas and and uh, lay in the hammock and dream. <laughs> Well, maybe I will have to coordinate a road trip out there during the middle of winter to experience that for myself, and we can have another conversation like this in person. Let's do that, and we can do it all in uh, in Phoenix. We can maybe do it with a video camera or something. Yeah, that'd be fun. But yeah, thank you, Jerome, for joining me today and having this conversation. I really appreciate hearing your story and all this work bringing so much information about greenhouses out into the world for people to be able to build their own and do so much more than they might imagine with the landscape. Great. And people can get the book through Chelsea Green or Amazon, the Forest Garden Greenhouse book. And I will ensure to include links to all of that in the show notes for people to be able to find it and get a copy as well as more information about Crimpy and the rest of your work. Thank you, Jerome. For- Thank you. And that was Jerome Ozentowski. You can find out more about him, his work, and the Forest Garden Greenhouse book at the Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute website, crmpi.org. As I mentioned during this conversation, I owe a lot of my permaculture education to what Jerome and the team at Crimpy have done over the years, because that is where, as I remember, Ben Weiss trained before teaching me. If you're looking for a permaculture design course or to study professional practices, you'd be hard-pressed not to study there if you can make it. As part of the work for this show, as I said to Jerome, I'm interested in visiting sometime to learn more and document the greenhouses and the other work going on there. We'll see what happens with that. For anyone interested in starting a small business, whether permaculture or otherwise, there's something to be said for the ongoing adaptation and stick to that Jerome and Crimpy have gone through over the years to keep operating. Rebuilding the greenhouse after losing it in the fire, operating multiple businesses to provide financial income and redundancy, trying different things to see what works, what fits for that environment, physically, socially, and metaphorically. I also like that he's planning for the succession of Crimpy and the other businesses on site, so that this work can go on, not just for another season, or another year, but for decades to come. A reminder to think long-term, beyond our own lives, and to flourishing future generations. If there's any way I can help you to explore the possibilities of your local community, to prepare for a bountiful future, or to grow your business or permaculture practice, get in touch. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you like, you can also drop something into the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. In the show notes of this episode, there are several announcements I want to share with you. The first is the upcoming Free the Seeds Seed Swap and Start Fair on March 19, 2016 at the Flathead Valley Community College in Kalispell, Montana. The event includes workshops on starting seeds, saving seeds, beekeeping, food preservation, and, of course, permaculture. You'll find a high-resolution copy of the flyer for that event in the show notes, which you're more than welcome to share with others. And you can also check out the website at freetheseedsmt.com. 
The second is about Wild Cooperative, which is a budding community started by a couple on 16 acres near Crawford, Colorado. They're looking for folks interested in building a permaculture-based biocentric community. You can read more about this project and what they're looking to accomplish at wildcooperative.wordpress.com and look for the entry from February 15th, which you'll find a link directly to in the show notes. On that WordPress site, you'll also find satellite and other pictures detailing the location and layout of the land. From here on February 22nd, I'll be in Baltimore for an open house and roundtable recording with Charm City Farms. You can find out more about the Johnson Square Open House and RSVP by following the link in the show notes. On June 18th, 2016 is the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence to be held at the Riverside Project near Charlestown, West Virginia. Michael Judd, author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, is the keynote speaker. I'll be there hosting an in-person roundtable recording in the evening, while throughout the day there are workshops including Living in the Gift with Seppi Garrett from Seppi's Place, Children in Permaculture with Jen Mendez of Permikids, and Broadacre Agriculture for Permaculture Practitioners with Ethan Strickler. Tickets are currently on sale. Tickets are currently on sale, so pick yours up today. As we draw this episode to a close, the next interview is David Peter Stroh joining me to talk about personal transformation and systems thinking for social change, and after that is Nadi Passau of Jewish Farm School for the first conversation on Judaism and earth care. Until the next time, take care of earth, yourself, and each other.